friends! Welcome to episode 185 of Storyteller Conclave. This is a show all about helping you run the best tabletop role-playing game that you can. Whether you're a new storyteller or dungeon master learning the craft, or an experienced storyteller looking to take your game to the next level. I'm Sarah. And I'm Rob. How are we doing, Rob? You know, I'm, I'm still kind of rushing a bit. Uh, Mixelar decided to change its interface a little bit on me, and, like, I didn't get the tea water started fast enough, and we've got a guest, and so I'm, like, trying to get all the little things together. Yeah, so. lots of, lots of uh, discordant little dots to get in a row there. Yeah, not so. to mention I was sick and now you've got kind of the same thing I have. Yeah. So yeah. You're, you're, at least you're not into the like can do a Ford truck commercial voice which everybody seems to be getting out of this. So. Uh, I, I mean I did but uh, there's 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 problems with me doing that voice. So. Yeah, yeah. So um, um, it's, so, it's funny because I, I think I think I I mean I almost definitely got it at at my game. Yes. You yes. know, uh, and so it's like I'm sitting there, you know, going through a box of Kleenex and I'm just like, worth it. <laughs> it was a good game anyways. It, it was so, a really, really good game. I apologize if I sound nasally or wheezy or cough or anything like that. So I, I am still getting over that. I have a box of Kleenex next to me <laughs> and uh, some hot tea brewing. Yes. And we will get through this. We will be good. I did we the uh, honey ginger. We have extra honey here. I think we'll be good to go for the show. Uh, it sounds like, a, sounds like a great remedy. So uh, welcome to everybody in the live chat as well. And those listening on MixLR, we're glad to have you. Um... Today, uh, I, I don't. We didn't. We we had your game, but we've already spoken about that because that was the previous week. Yeah, that was previous um, week. Yeah. I don't think we have anything new. We um, have what your we have. Uh, we have double double creature feature coming up next yes. weekend, which is your game and Mouse Guard. Correct. At the same time. Correct. Which will be a lot of fun because we go from my level of excitement to super relaxed, chill out Mouse Guard, which I'm, I'm looking I forward love to. Mouse Guard, yeah. So at least our game is very chill. So that and that's that's a wonderful feeling to have. And then uh, uh, I, you know, I've been I've been dealing with a lot of like writer's block. Uh, yes. Of, yes. Uh, you know how to, I, just because I I need to kind of meticulously plan how I trickle out certain plot lines to yeah. make them land correctly, which I think is going swimmingly. By no, the way, I, I agree. I, I think, think it's, it's fantastic. Swimmingly. Um, because I, I've, I have seen you guys pick up on you know a lot of the things that I've been dropping, and it's it's really great. Um, However, uh, this this next game session I've already got almost completely written, and we don't play until December fourth. Um, and it's because I have hit such a great spot of inspiration for how our last game ended. Uh, Sean's character uh, in made me invent an NPC on the fly and asked yes. him some questions about a plot I didn't have planned. Well, that's what you get when you have a tactical social player. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so I was very, I was very put out during the time because I didn't know how to deal with it. And I, I really wanted to give him a good experience, but I had to invent all of that stuff on the fly. Yeah. Um, and then once I, once I was able to sleep on it, like basically overnight, I was like, Oh, I've got some ideas. So I've already bought some minis off of my mini factory.com. <laughs> um, and uh, I may be constructing yet another dedicated terrain board set. That's awesome uh, for this next game. Hopefully, so. reusable for other things. I mean, yeah. If uh, look, all you guys need to do is have something that is set in that sort of a venue, and you may use it for whatever you wish. Yeah. No, I've I've definitely got some things coming up for my game where I'm going to be able to use those scenes in random. Sure. Um, I do have a lot of the digital boards ready to go, mm-hmm. just in case, because I literally have no idea what you guys are going to do. Because you could, you have a lot of avenues to go, but I'm prepared for 95 percent of it. Yeah, exactly. So. Just 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 you know, drop me a Discord message. Hey, Sarah, bring the tab. Yeah. Okay. I'll bring I, the tavern. I, yeah. yeah. We'll see what happens with it. So, um, 
All right, so we have a show. We have a show, and we have someone technically on hold right now. We do. Uh, So the show, what we wanted to talk about tonight, um, we get a lot of questions, especially like in our Discord, um, of newer storytellers who want to know about uh, world building. Yes. And not just any world building, um, not just getting it across to your your players, but in fact actually building the world itself um, from the standpoint of uh, homebrew settings. You know, how do you come up with the homebrew setting? How do you... um, you know, how do you invent all this stuff and, and make it all live? Uh, and so we have with us, uh, at least maybe, do we? We'll find out here in a second. Well, my Discord just dropped, yeah. I think Discord's being a little weird right now, maybe. Well, that's going to make it inconvenient. Um, anywho, who we have with us, hopefully, uh, is a uh, man by the name of Dave Somerville. Um, and uh, Mr. Somerville has... Uh, is a published author of of a couple different uh, couple different settings. He's actually made some own, uh, some of his own uh, game systems as well. Correct. Um, you can find some of those actually up on uh, Drive Through RPG. Um, and uh, Dave, if you're uh, my Discord just came back up. Dave, if you're still with us, Let's see if we can get you unmuted. Oh no, we may have lost Dave briefly. He can hear us, but he can't talk. Okay, we'll have to figure out what's going on. You know, on. everything was working fine literally yeah. up until this exact up moment. This very moment. So, you know, we'll 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 get things we'll get we'll get Dave back on the line here. I feel almost like a radio show that mm-hmm. keeps getting disconnections. Uh, and I I will say this, there has been a lot of weird internet stuff going on in the last like 72 hours. There has been, yeah. Uh level 3 had a huge issue and an outage that affected me. I like I couldn't get to my work, but I could get to other things yesterday. Yeah, why don't most West had a, had a big hiccup yesterday as well. Yeah, and uh, it, and, the and then of course Ticketmaster's like literal shutdown of half the internet from uh Tay-Tay tickets. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean it was just a little bit chaotic, to say the least, out there. Yep, 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 um, yep. So, let's see what's going on here. We'll see if we can we can reconnect and uh, get Dave... Oh, oh, I may be disconnected. Hold on, let's see what we can do here. Alrighty, well, we'll take a look at that. Um, but in the meantime, um, I... Uh, you know, like I said, we, we, we have these questions about, you know, uh, about actually creating a homebrew world. Um, and... So, uh, David actually reached out to us, uh, regarding his, uh, the setting he had just actually finished publishing, uh, which is called Plangea, which is a, uh, fantasy, uh, prehistoric setting for, um, D&D 5th edition. And, uh, we were both absolutely fascinated by it, so we thought, um, you know, who better to talk to us about, uh, building their own homebrew world than someone who has done it literally professionally. Yeah. Did we get you back, Dave? You did. I had to like ride a T Rex and jump through a time portal, but I'm here now. <laughs> it is good to hear you. Thank that is you. no easy task, man. I have ridden a T Rex <laughs> before, and oh boy. Yeah, I mean, to, to say the least, both Sarah and I, and and many a few of our listeners, to say the least, have played Ark Survival Evolved. So, like, my brain when we first saw the setting was like, oh my gosh, somebody made Ark Survival Evolved for D and D. That is fantastic. And my question, of course, today was, hey, do you know about Ark? And he's like, no. And I'm like. Oh my god, that makes it twenty percent better because now it's like you know, a totally I different thing. It, but I can't say that I played it. But man, I, I will tell you that while I was working on it, I pulled up the Arc Wiki more than once because those game designers have done some thinking about how to bring dinosaurs into uh, 
Yeah, in, into everyday life in really awesome ways. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. How do you gamify a Stegosaurus, exactly. you know? Oh, I exactly. love it. It's right? awesome. So, David, I am so glad you were able to join us. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad we can hear you and that we're having problems. If something <laughs> drops, we'll definitely keep talking back between Discord here to make sure we get it. But uh, why don't you give us a little flavor of yourself? I know we said you've created some games. How did you step into the game world, if you could, in, in, in a small bite of information? Sure, yeah. Uh, well, I'm late to RPGs, but uh, early to games. I think I trace my origin story for games back to when I was a kid. My dad was uh, an early adopter of technology, and I remember watching him play Hack, which was like uh, basically the original roguelike um, on a black and white or green and black monitor and just like watching him delve into these dungeons and oh, yeah. from very early on the idea of um, games where there were you're making choices and then there was an element of chance and then consequence because it had permadeath um, all of that captured me from an early age and from then it was on to choose your own adventure books and filling composition notebooks with world building ideas um i went on to do some pixel art for um an iphone game uh write some some narrative and then began uh, sorry wrote some narrative for another game um and created a board game called vast the crystal caverns which I wasn't really in the board game scene very much. I just knew the experience that I wanted to have was like this very living, vivid dungeon. And this was someone who had never played it like a moment of D&D, hadn't had access to that as a kid. Um, and so I just had this idea of like, what if this like you could have a really vibrant, living sort of like classic dungeon kind of a world Um so I made a board game about it and then discovered, oh, they already have that. It's called RPGs. Um, and yeah. from there on, it was pretty much hook, line, and sinker into um, first fourth edition D&D, then fifth, and uh, the wide world of, of indie games after that. Very good. Very good. Yeah. So uh, stepping kind of into RPGs as, as a whole... Um, you you obviously got interested in them, and then that evolved into you almost creating this, and I would say relatively instantly, um, in, in timeline wise. So, how did how did that come about? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I have. Um... I love the the design of games. I really care a lot about it. And so I started off, I think I played a couple of sessions as a player, but very rapidly was like, oh, I want to DM. Um, and my first uh, experience DMing was not actually at a table. It was over Twitter DMs. Me and two friends ran a long running, I think it was over a year of like a, a two PC game Um just in just in dms and i i built a world built my first world there and i remember all i had when i started was you are in the rain and you see a shack and you want to get out of the rain run for the shack and i didn't know anything about what was around them i just knew it was kind of like fantasy you know kitchen sink europe um analog and like yeah get some shelter and then um sort of um post by post session by session choice by choice built out the world around who they were and their choices and what they encountered um and i really cut my teeth on world building for rpgs in that context okay um yeah and then from there i ran that same um 
setting for family. Um, I, I accidentally introduced my whole family to D&D, and they accidentally loved it. Um, asked me about running a improvised one-shot for 11 family members, including nieces and grandparents. Oh, um, my God. Uh, as someone who <laughs> and literally introducing what the game is, making all of their PCs, making a setting, and running it all in a day uh, was a good time. That sounds like um, an absolute nightmare. Uh, it was great. The nightmare was I was like, we're gonna do this, and I came up with this three hour one shot. And then in, after an hour, they were like, that's great, good job. And I was like, wait, but but the dragon, but you know, <laughs> But what about F two and three? Yeah, exactly. So, Um, so from there, where did Plangea come from? Where did this idea even birth? I mean, we've talked about it, and I'm kind of leading through it, but like, it's it's still kind of incredible that you 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 stepped (laughs) into this. Now, obviously, there was a little bit of inspiration, and we'll kind of come from that. But when when did this birth? After all of that, yeah, after all of that. So I ran that setting for a while and really found that um, it was it lacked enough going on. Right. There was sort of like the generic fantasy felt generic and sort of inert. And so I found myself reading up on, you know, on the hobby and on the history of the hobby and stumbled across the uh, Wizards of the Coast fantasy setting search Mm -hmm. that led to the creation of Eberron. And I uh, was fascinated by this. I missed it because I was basically a fifth edition kid and uh, started wondering, like, huh, well, if I had been around when Wizards of the Coast was asking people to send in a fantasy world, what would I have chosen? And um, I scribbled out a couple of ideas. I don't remember what the other ones were because I hit on Stone Age fantasy and I was like, "Okay, that I could see that being kind of cool. and the, what's great about the the search is I, I sort of made myself a, a task of acting like I really was um, submitting something to the search. So it listed a few prompts, like you could only write one page and it had to be, what is the world? Who are the heroes and what do they do? What are the villains and what do they do? How does magic work? What do adventures look like? Like this really high level thinking mm-hmm. and by filling that out i very quickly discovered there's something here um and then the next step when they ran the competition was to do a 10 page treatment so i did a 10 page treatment and then it was to do a 100 page treatment and that 100 page treatment turned into the 500 page book that <laughs> i have in front of me here oh okay. that's amazing yeah no but that that's a great framework to start from um and and to have to think of it in those guidelines gave you some very strong structure that you had to pick from i think that's a i think that's a great way of looking at it and defining it and and that's actually not a bad uh, formula to try and to see if your idea flushes well well right because it it forces you to start small you know where it's like you've only got one broad strokes you know you've only got one page so you've got to think about it in the broad concepts like okay now you've got 10 pages so now you can get a little more refined but you still can't get super detailed right and you ask some pointed questions like well how does how does magic work you know right who are the good guys who are the bad guys yeah it's it's Mm -hmm. it's that sales pitch that you're throwing to players in a very formulaic way yeah yeah so which is fantastic 
So, yeah. so where did the whole dust dinosaur idea came from? Which which <laughs> book? What movie? Where where were you? Where's where did this head? Well, I, come I know from? what my answer is, but I didn't write the setting, so <laughs> that's true. That's true. What's your answer? I want to know. Uh, Chrono Trigger, actually. Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, Chrono amazing. Trigger is a great game for the Super Nintendo back in the day. One of the best games ever made, in my humble opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of other people. Uh, great soundtrack, and it involves time traveling heroes. Uh, trying to defeat an ancient evil that has basically always been with the planet. Um, And uh, this ancient evil arrives during the prehistoric era. Okay. And Mm -hmm. uh, shifts the balance of power, basically, where there is humans and dinosaurs that are both vying for, essentially, the evolutionary top rung of the ladder. Okay. And this, uh, this ancient evil making impact with the uh with the planet um and burrowing into its core essentially offsets that thing because we were essentially destined to be a dinosaur run planet <laughs> okay. and it wow. tilted it tilts the the balance of power and causes history to uh remember humans instead of dinosaurs and so Intriguing. humans take over the planet Intriguing. <laughs> I, I never followed the game, but I, uh, I had a few friends who played it. So. There is a, a prehistoric character named Isla that you can uh, invite to your team, and she's this like brute bruiser, and she's adorable. So it's it's great. It's great. It's good. Fun. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. amazing! Okay, Chrono Trigger is going on the list. Oh, I know okay. the name, but I haven't played it. Now yeah, one hundred percent. You're gonna love it. You're gonna love it. Uh, so awesome. so, what was yours? Where did this really birth from? Mine was Roland Emmerich's 10,000 BC. Oh, the movie, okay. I don't know. For those of you who weren't uh, as fascinated by this as I was, uh, the guy who made Independence Day made a sort of, it's kind of a B movie, to be honest with you. It is a big prehistoric spectacle. Um, I remember seeing the trailer and I was like, I got to see that. But I had no concrete plans. Um, And then one day I was in my basement apartment and uh, my two brothers showed up and apparently my wife had arranged for them to uh, come by, grab me, throw them, throw me in the back of the Jeep and drive me to the biggest movie theater around, which is like this two story uh, screen outside of Washington, D.C. at the Uptown Theater. And man, I wasn't expecting it. I got hauled into this experience. I got thrown in front of this massive screen and I watched this movie that um, I have never watched again because I am sure that it can't live up to what it is in my mind. It is just this. It was like falling through a time portal. It was this transportive, incredible, amazing experience. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the Yeah, just... I don't want to spoil anything, but the movie does an excellent job of putting you in the mindset of a smart, resourceful, prehistoric person. You know, the conceit is not that this person is an idiot. It's that they are living in... Um, tricky circumstances from the get-go and then they run up against things that are far too big for them and I think a lot of this uh, setting came from that but I also have to give kudos to two other big movies which were um, Stargate because I saw it way too young and it terrified me yes yes I uh, the idea of running into these like incredibly more powerful than you like uh, this sort of um uh, Egyptian style um, power that was just like so far beyond what you had any way of processing, I think paired so well with what you found in 10,000 BC. Okay. Um, 
And then the third thing was Mad Max Fury Road. And I saw that and it rock. I was watching it. I was like 10 minutes in. I was like, oh, this might be my favorite movie now. Um, and that <laughs> experience continued all the way to the end. And uh, I, I wound I watched that. And then when I sat down to start to do this setting, I was like, I want to make Mad Max with woolly mammoths. Oh, yeah. There you oh, go. Absolutely. Uh, that, that is a great way of feeling. Do you feel that, you know, in, in a quick sense, do you feel that you got that, that you got that feeling when it was done? Yeah, I think I did because that was the bar I held myself to. Every time I was writing something, I uh, I asked myself, like, does this feel out of control? Does it feel too big? Does it feel like a war wagon, like charging towards you? And if it didn't, I like, you know, I drew an 11 on the speaker and turned it up one notch higher. Um <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> yes. I think got there. Okay. So so having this level of inspiration of where things where did you start? Where did you start from a gigantic overview? Did you just grab components? Mm-hmm. Did you get scenes, mythology? Yeah. I'm actually a big believer that one of the most common mistakes of world building is to start with the history and the mythology. Um because one thing I love about the uh, fantasy setting search material is it doesn't say what's the history of your world. It says who are the heroes and what do they do? Yeah. yeah and absolutely. so keeping everything present tense, um, especially in the Stone Age where like you are prehistory, you are the first of everything, um, felt really, really, really important to me. And throughout the book, there are hints at things that have come before, but it is extremely light uh, on any detail for sort of what precedes you. Because the whole conceit is you're the first, like you go out there and you do it and you're going to be the one who they're making constellations about. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's I think it's great advice too to start with what what do the heroes do you know because it keeps mm-hmm. you uh, focused on the playability of your setting um, you know mm-hmm. so it makes it always available for uh, for you to be able to drop a drop a game into it you know and your players always to know what their purpose is uh, I love the game Aberrant mm-hmm. uh, by White Wolf Games um, mm-hmm. but I would say my probably my biggest criticism with that entire setting is that there's a lot of places it makes a better book than it does a setting because um they it's so rich in history but it's almost too rich in history and you start Mm -hmm. wondering like well where do i fit into it you know yeah yeah you know exactly i feel the a a lot of that also comes in uh dune like we have this Mm -hmm. you know when you come from something like dune uh the book series and the movie and you have all of this world building you're being thrown into the middle of a pre-existing world that has literally, and if I'm not mistaken, and somebody correct me on this one, at least 10,000 years of active history that you're dealing with live. Yeah, 10,000 yeah. was the number I was going to say from memory, yeah. Yeah, and so so it's like, <laughs> that is all listed of how things yeah. went, but at the same time, they're helping you frame that you are a house among this history, and that mm-hmm. it's, just a, it's just more settings, because it's a framework for where it's at. Uh, Shadowrun does another good job of that, of that this is the prehistory, but it doesn't tell you about the moment that you're living in. Um, yeah. And I think there's a balance there, but you don't need that prehistory to play the game. 
it is good reference, exactly. but it's it's not there. Whereas I think like with Aberrant, it's it's most of the plot feels like it's wrapped around this novelization that you're inserted into. Yeah, you kind of mm-hmm. have to look for the angles rather than it coming in preloaded. Like you know, like we're we're very hard on D and D. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. uh, well, like like you know, like you, as you said in our in our earlier discussion when we were kind of priming uh, the, the the show here, D and D is the doof wagon of RPGs, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I absolutely it love really that. is. Yeah, for, um, but we're very hard on it. But but what it does though, great, is that it comes in with an expectation of what you're going to be doing with it. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. like pick your class that is going to f- go fight monsters. You know, and here's a monster manual. Uh, go fight monsters. Go have an adventuring day and explore yeah. this dangerous, fantastic world with dungeons and treasure and magic and wonder. Yeah, and and mix it up. Yeah, and that's what you do in D anD D. You know. Yeah, it's. I, yeah. I, I referenced it as the cheeseburger of games. You know, mm-hmm. everybody everybody has their version of it, but it really doesn't matter. Everyone knows it's still a cheeseburger at the beginning and at the end of the day. And you know, <laughs> you know whether it's a hamburger or a cheeseburger is the relevant point. Like it's yep. still the burger. It's some America's... people want to put pepperoni and mozzarella on it and call sure. it a pizza burger, but we know what it is. At it's the still end of a the burger. Day. At the end of the day. You, <laughs> you even can't make... fool us. Yeah. We know you exactly. can make it vegan. Exactly you can do whatever right. you want, but it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the beauty of that. Um, one of the things that you had said in our pre-meeting, which I thought was a really neat quote, and I want you to kind of go into this, is you said, drink deeply from the well that inspires you. Yeah. Well, so for me, I think um, what happened, I mean, this circles back to your earlier question of what did I do first? What I didn't do was start with the mythology. What I did do was I sat down with my brother who um, was nearby and I was like, all right, I have an idea. Stone Age D&D, let's go. And I was like, you're in the snow, I guess. And, oh, there's tracks that way. And we did this little survival scenario and, you know, he killed something so he could get warm. And I was like, okay, I guess that's it, probably. (laughs) Um, And I quickly realized they're just like, the way that I thought of it when I started is the way I think a lot of people do when I pitch this. They're like, okay, but like that, there's not enough to do there. Like you're going to kill something, you're going to get attacked by a beast, and then that's the end, right? So yeah, you got food, shelter, water. What, what yeah. else you got? Congrats, you win the right, game. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I sort of like, I was like, okay, huh, well, let me think about this more. And um, I happened to be in the same town as him because I was getting ready to set off on a year-long trip around America. Um, I had a remote job, and my wife and I were looking for a new town to raise our three kids in because we'd grown up in the D.C. area and were ready to be somewhere else. So as I was traveling, I was looking for... Um, I was looking out to the wilderness to be expired, to be inspired, but also I was, uh, happened to fall into a couple of key things. One of which was the appendix N book club podcast, um, which looks at sword and sorcery, like the, the books that inspired the very first role-playing games. Um, and I hadn't known about sword and sorcery as a separate genre. I hadn't known about its sort of, um, its shape and its, outline and as i started listening to this podcast i was like this is what i love like i and all of a sudden it came crystal clear to me why tolkien had never clicked for me like it did for my brothers it was just like i am a sword and sorcery guy i love this like uh, this faffert and gray mouser conan stuff like this works for me um you need something high octane 
you know, yeah, as, some as high octane, the- some some gray morals, some like extreme high and low disparity between you know um, civilization and uh, wilderness. I think there's a lot of um, sort of magic that corrupts. There's all these different ideas baked in there, all of which then I just like pumped like uh, pure in pure raw form into plain Gia. And I think the point about drinking deeply from inspiration is the game was interesting when it was like Mad Max with mammoths and it had some fun stuff in there, right? Directly drawn from those movies. Um, but it wasn't until I really thought about like, what inspires me? Where does this come from? What is the, like, what's the most, what's, um, how can I just like soak in the inspiration here and take everything that comes up and be like that, that feels right. That like rings true. That's like a tuning fork I can hit and it's a pure note. And, and that's going into this material and being free to do that, you know, freed by that quote, good artists borrow, great artists steal. So, um, you know, all of this, everything is a remix, right? Uh, Everything is pastiche. And so um, setting myself free, I just I was just reading something where it said um, people worry too much about originality and not enough about authenticity. So worry less about is this my new idea and ask yourself, like, is this true? Is this like does this ring true for the thing I'm trying to make? And I think um, just soaking in inspiration and then translating what rings true for the project you're working on is just a great way to to put together something really special. Yeah, I was what's interesting is the way you were talking about that reminds me I was literally just watching a thing about Speed Racer, the movie. Uh, yeah, and how it was an actually a, a, an incredible movie, and I agree, it really is an incredible <laughs> movie. I, I I will fight you. I will fight people on this. Um, oh, me, I'll so be right ways. there next to you. I'm um, on your side. But one of the things about the main character of the movie was they never lost their core principle of drive. The person just wants mm-hmm. to drive, and everything is based mm-hmm. upon that person driving to resolve the problem not like yes. going out and becoming a kung fu master uh, also right. not saving the day by stopping the bat no like i'm gonna drive and by driving i'm going to beat everything and mm-hmm. that wraps the, wraps the story around it and within that is that purity of story and i think mm-hmm. there's a certain aspect of that that i mean i'll flat out say it's it's something that we th- we don't think about Sarah when we're creating our games. We we often bury it in with what we're already doing. Like what is it? Si- what is sitting behind the theme even or the feel? It's what is that core s- note mm-hmm. that's running through this that makes the game feel a certain way? Whether that feeling is, you know, we are pirates. That yeah. is the core mm-hmm. of this feeling, or we are, you know, we are mercenaries. Like that, that is what mm-hmm. this company is. And if you can keep that note rolling, you know, we are family is a note that you can roll through and yep. continue that, yeah. that to bleed through everything. And yours, like you said, it is, uh, you said, is this metal enough? And right. I love that concept and that feel and the concept of being able to look at no matter what you're putting into the story and say, is this metal enough? Like, have mm-hmm. I reached that level? Am I? Are the speakers at eleven, or are they only at ten? <laughs> exactly. Can exactly. I can I go up a notch? Can I invent a notch yeah. and then go up? And it's not even so much about being angry or being aggressive or being right. threatening. It's just being to that level of 
of larger than life. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Larger like, than life. Yeah. You could have the war band leader in his furs, you know, uh, riding in on the mammoth, or you could have the war band leader painted to the nines with like mm-hmm. spikes coming out of his stuff, you know, screaming with a war cry with like forty guys hanging off the side of his mammoth with hooks. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Now yeah. now you're winning with metal, you know. Tethered to the yeah, mammoth. Now yeah. You're playing a plain Dia game. You're doing it exactly right. right Tethered right. to the mammoth as he as he beats two gigantic war timpanies on the top of the mammoth. Yeah. Exactly. Even the mammoth has like raptor claws stitched into yeah. its feet. Yes. You know, so that as it's moving, it's practically Practically clawing like you know, like a cat into the ground. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, hang on while I get out my dice because I just really want to play this game right now. Can we just play this game right <laughs> play, now? So 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 let's talk about that. Your your fundamentals of what you're focusing on, this 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 concept of being cool and metal, like how it wasn't obviously just you in the end working on there's there was contributions, this became a team effort. How did you how did you carry that through? Yeah. Well, it was it was really cool. I posted up the map and a few other things on Reddit, um, got a response like I'd never gotten before where it was just like, okay, where are we going to follow this? Like, when are you going to post more? I had literally never used Discord at all. And someone was like, I made a Discord. We're talking about it in here now. Come in here. Um, And it just became a community because people wanted this. Um, And it was really interesting. I had a process of open development. So I would write something and I would post it. At first on Reddit and then on Reddit and Discord um, and get real-time feedback from people. So a big part of the reason that the book is as good as it is is because it's it's been looked at every page every word has been had like you know (laughs) a group of hardcore nerds who like really are invested you know going over it and arguing about it and um and giving their insights and uh in my day job i'm a creative director um so i do a lot of um giving and taking of criticism um on art uh, a lot and something i've really learned is critique is a gift if someone is offering you feedback, they are taking their time to engage with what you're what you're doing. And people are really bad at identifying the solutions, but they're really good at identifying problems. So if you have someone's like, oh, man, you know, this is terrible. I hate it. All your dinosaurs are so dumb. What I do is I'd make it all. You can basically like. Stop after what I do or stop before what I do. Go back and say, oh, the dinosaurs aren't working. All right, cool. And then you can say thank you to this person who's just like torn your thing apart. Really helpful. I appreciate it. Um, So as we started engaging with this feedback and like, all right, here's dinosaurs version two. And people are like, oh, I like this more. There are a few people who were really, really extra engaged, extra insightful and got what I was going for. Um, And more and more, I found myself pulling them in and being like, hey, before I send this to everyone else, you've got really good ideas. What do you think of this? And to me, it was always like, this will be fine if I make it. It will be great if we make it. Yeah, over, so, Overwatch in our channel here was actually saying that he had downloaded a sampler PDF two years ago that had half yeah. ooze people in it. <laughs> oh yeah, half ooze is a race, for sure. Oh wow. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so so there you go. Yeah. Like one of our one of our listeners was part of that group. And I, I think yeah. that's fantastic that you that you were able to to not just uh, listen to the feedback, but to I guess hear the overwhelm of the feedback questions that came to you of like, 
I can question this, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm yeah. not. It, this isn't just like my baby. Don't touch it. I, you know, you you're not hearing what I'm saying. It's, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm saying things. What are you hearing? Right. And we we yes. actually talk a lot about that. Um, with like uh, even just just in in, in your game during your game session, you know, yeah. where your mm-hmm. players will tell you what they want out of your game session. Yep. You know, yeah. if your players are going off on some random direction that isn't your main plot. One way to take that is why aren't they taking playing the main plot? This is so insulting. But another is to like, well, what are they going after? Because clearly they're right. interested in that, and in your they're asking for it. Yeah, and in your mind, you have this vision of the plot because you have everything else in your head. When you're mm-hmm. like, when when David puts this out on the internet, they're only seeing those pages. Yeah, they don't yeah. have the other concept or even the feel sometimes because it's very hard to get that feeling out without a lot of uh, a lot of explanation and reading through between the lines to be able to have them say, "Oh, he he's making everything metal," you know, or yeah. he's doing this, or you know. And so in that, you're you're able to take a look and see what the mirror of everyone else. Is vision what yeah. they're seeing, which is beautiful yeah. when you get that chance. Well, and I think there's something that's true about this is like you can argue with people on the internet all day long about why they are wrong and stupid and your thing is great, but you won't be able to do that with people who buy the book if it becomes a book, right? They're right. just going to have the thing and you won't be there to explain it. And so for me, every time there was one thing I ran into over and over very early on, which is the persistent feedback. Oh, this is a game where I'm going to be stupid and hit stuff with a rock. And I was just like, that is not what I mean. And I got really not frustrated personally, but just like, I was like, I don't know how to get this across that. The idea is you can have level, you can have 20 intelligence. You can be as smart as you can possibly be. And you're still in the Stone Age, and that's still something you have to deal with. And so I tried this and that, certain explanations of how this could work. But ultimately, until I found a world-building way to be like, in my case it was, there are metaphysical forces that just kill you if you rise above a certain technology level. Everyone is forced to remain in the Stone Age, no matter how brilliant they are. And you don't have to use that if you don't want to. Here's some ways around that. DMs, if that's not your style, that's fine. But having that thing where it's like, let me put in a world-building way to make it easy for you to see and understand and experience the thing that is most important to me, rather than just arguing and be like, no, you can be smart in the Stone Age. Um, like, world-building your way out powder. of it. Find a way to make it playable and engaging. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm going to make gunpowder, or I know how to make poisons. Like, if I'm that exactly. smart, I should be able to do these things. Like, yeah, you could make advanced metals in D&D fantasy as well. Right, you just, right. You have to find all the materials, but at the same point, you don't have access to this learning. Hey, my yeah. character, well, your source And that fun is not wrong, right? Like, if that's what someone wants to pursue at their table, then fine. Yeah. It's just that's not all the fun that's to be had. So let me give you this tool as a DM where you can tell other kinds of stories, and then you can choose what you want to do at your table for what's fun with your group. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Exactly. It's about arming them with options. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, exactly. so we, we, we've talked about where it came from, we've talked about how you worked on it, we've talked, we, we've talked around it and, and what this thing is, uh, and, and, and that it's dinosaurs in this Mad Maxian world. I mean, yes, it's still placed inside of D&D, so mm-hmm. what, what makes this 
fit in D&D and what makes it different than other D&D settings? What is the uniqueness yeah. there? And and how do you marry those things? Because again, it's still D&D. There's still classes per se. There's still alignments and things you have to work with. How, how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. So for me, I really wanted it to be not just and this is gonna might sound funny to I know you guys are a sophisticated set of consumers, you and your audience of RPGs. Um, <laughs> so this might sound a little funny, but I really wanted it to be a love letter to D and D and to D and D Fifth Edition, and not fight against, but really embrace and express the the origins of the game and the expression of the game that I had enjoyed so much with my friends and family. And so um, there were a few things that I did. Uh, one was, and this is directly taken from Eberron, um, you know, Eberron was built with the concept that everything in D&D is in this world. It just might not look how you expect. So that was my goal. I was like, if it's in any D and D source book, it needs to have a way in which it could make sense in this world. And so what that led to was just, you know, D and D is like we said, it's the doof wagon, right? You right. attach things onto D and D. You just yeah. like, I don't know. How about this? Like giant horn. I'm going to hammer it on here. And Oh, now we have pirate ship mechanics. Like we'll put that on there too. How about a guy with um, a flamethrower guitar? Why not? Yeah. Exactly. Right. So so it was important that it embraced that sort of maximal aesthetic from the beginning. Um, And the way that I went about that was a couple of things. One, um, I felt very comfortable renaming things like classes. So, for example, you know, cleric uh, or monk are words that suggest organized religion over a long time right, right? right so it yeah. became shaman and ascetic um and uh, and and those weren't the only things that got renamed a lot of stuff got renamed but all of that drove towards the idea of you can have the class fantasy of being a brilliant person who studies deeply and engages with the world deeply what does that look like if you don't have the tool of writing you know, maybe that is where cave paintings come from. Maybe cave paintings are ancient wizards, or as they're called in this game, spell skins, who are trying to work out the shape of magic for the first time through these mystical paintings on the walls that then they tattoo on their own bodies. Oh, yeah, right. So on. in yeah. each case, it was like, let me look at the thing. Let me make sure you're getting that core experience, but it's sort of turned 90 degrees and feels fresh. Um, another example is shortly before, or maybe while making it, I saw a, a, like someone who put so much work into it. And I don't mean this as a slam on that person in any way. There was this world that I saw where it was like, okay, here's what's different about this world. Orcs, they're the cool, sophisticated ones and elves. They're the barbarians. I was like, okay, that's not what I want. It's fine. If what's, if that's what they want. But for me, what I want is I want elves to be elves, but I want them to be like this primal. If I rewind elves, if I take elves and I move them back and I'm like, just like, yeah, like keep cranking the knob of history backwards. Where do the things that make elves, especially elves in D&D, come from and feel like they feel? And I'm like, okay, well, there's this like fey influence and they're sort of ethereal. And, you know, and I would look back at like ancient folklore and history. 
And I was really inspired by the idea from early from from many mythologies of the dream world. And I was like, what if what if there is a dream world and what if elves come from the dream world and what if they are effectively half dream and they're sort of translucent and they have move in and out of dreams and all these things felt very elven. They felt related to the way you want to play an elf, but it was sort of like. It was it was turned back through time. And I took that through every class, every race, um, every character option. Um, I have a thing in here about magic, the different schools of magic in D&D. And I was like, what if we thought about um, which uh, which race might have sort of pioneered this magic? So, you know, maybe it's a situation where um, dwarves made abjuration magic. And if you want to flavor abjuration magic as dwarvish, it's like here's the kind of sounds it makes and the kind of moves they make and what they do with the material components. And um, so for all of these things, it's just like, how do I make this feel like the game you want to play, but stripped back to something that feels um, more primal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's so much more interesting having done that, having put all the thought into essentially devolving D and D from yeah. you know from Western medieval to you know quasi Western medieval to to you know prehistoric. And going through that process with each and every each and everything, rather than just saying like, "Oh, it's D and D," but you have stone weapons. Yeah, the elves <laughs> yeah. are still still sleek and 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 knowledgeable and and otherworldly, but they're but they're ancient at this point mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah. You know, whereas yeah. no, they're proto and and right. they're they're still trying to kind of put themselves together. I mean, it feels very fey like. Yeah. Um, like from Seventh mm-hmm. uh, uh, C has the she. Which is effectively the Fey race, and it's it's almost a direct um, acknowledgement of the the Fey coming from some other world, and then presenting themselves in, you know, in in a in a in this mortal kind of existence that we have in realism. They can't express themselves the same way as they can express in their place, and yeah. because of that, they have the presence of humanity and look slightly human, but they are not. They don't procreate mm-hmm. in the same way, so they have to steal our children to be able to do it. You know, things Love like it. that. And so I see a lot of that carrying through of this proto-race of, of elves that, you know, are, are this this etherealness. I love that concept. Mm-hmm. And that they you, you could confuse them with Fae, but at the same time, they're not because they're right. so proto. And I think that's yeah. great. I love that concept. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh- yeah, it was so much fun. Like, you know, this is a world where it posits that um, that mortal races actually precede the gods and the gods are only beginning to develop now through the belief of mortals. And so you have these proto gods who are very animistic. They're tied to locations. So a god can't leave its hallow, which is its little like lair basically and so these gods are these extremely powerful spell casting beings but it could be a cave bear that people have been afraid of for a hundred years they've been afraid of it enough that they brought it food and um you know offerings and now it has taken on is sort of like 
cult like divine magic has accrued around it and so the gods become this really fun exciting um combination magic shop and quest giver because they can't leave their hallows so they need you to go and carry out their will and they want you to build shrines to them to enhance their power and they can you know give you that magic sword if you'll just go over there and do that and that's what i'm talking about with this like embracing the sword and sorcery and the D because at its core it's like you got somebody who has a magic thing and wants you to go kill a thing that's D D. That, yeah that's but you're yeah. doing it that's the question you're loop. doing it for a cave bear god who can't leave its hill i mean he's 18 feet tall and he glows blue with runes but he's still just a bear yeah exactly. i mean he literally has scars of battle that he had with your ancestors. Right, and yes. the thing he wants you to go kill is the champion of the Salmon King over in the river, you know. <laughs> like, there's a Bring giant... his head to eat. Yeah, and there's a giant yes. turtle who's probably allergic to humans, but he still needs them, <laughs> you know. Exactly. So no, that's exactly it. Yeah, I love, I love that. That is fantastic. Oh, and it's, so it's rich, and yet it still follows that theme. It's metal. Uh-huh. It's still mm-hmm. at that core, that hardness that that pulls everything back together again. And, and it's it still fits with your design element of everything that exists in D&D has to find some way to trickle into your world. And one of the major throughputs of D&D is that concept of the gods derive their powers from their believers. Yes. Right. And so yep. you found a way, you're like, well, what would happen if the believers were these, were, you know, prehistoric? Well... The gods wouldn't exist yet. You devolved the gods along with everything yeah. else, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and it was really cool because as I was writing, I actually didn't start with this, but as I was writing, I kept on finding these, like, through lines of, oh, yeah, that feels right. And I eventually wound up batching them into three sort of pillars, which were kinetic action, which is the Mad Max thing, uh-huh. primordial horror, which is sort of this... It comes from sword and sorcery a lot, but there's this very Lovecraftian vein, like, and also I think just the experience of being sort of pre-writing, pre-history, you don't have explanations for things, right? You see right. the the lightning and you truly have no idea why that exists or what to make of it. There's and no tomes of ancient lore. Yeah. 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 And then taking that out farther and like... Um, you know, obviously in a world with magic, you can have a lot scarier things than lightning. And so just like keep on cranking up that horror. But the other thing, the third one, which is really important to me, um, and actually also comes from Fury Road is there is this one moment, um, and this will mean more to those who have seen the film than others, but it's this very like wild, violent film. There's this moment of peace when they're driving and they're not directly under attack. And one of the, um, the people that they're rescuing reaches up and touches the inside of the cab of the truck that they're driving. And it has got this like patterned hammered gold tile, basically up on top, this like, uh, this patterned ceiling and she runs her fingers over it. And it's this lyrical moment. And I was, and it struck me when I was watching, I was like, there's something going on there. And then I was watching an interview with um, George Miller, the director, and the the uh, interviewer picked up on that moment and asked about it. And he was like, so excited. You could tell he was on a press junket. He had talked, answered the same yeah. questions a million times. He was so excited about this question because what she picked up on and what rang true for me, too, and what um, George Miller cared a lot about is people create beauty. There's records of art that was made in... Um, 
in in prison camps in the worst of circumstances like people make beauty they make pattern they make meaning even in dire circumstances and we see this with cave paintings we see this throughout humanity and so this idea blend that together with a with that Jurassic Park moment as the horn as the music swells and he first sees the dinosaur and he's like staggering backwards and like peeling off his sunglasses that idea of mystic wonder was really really the third pillar that locked in the setting and so kinetic action primordial horror and mystic wonder as i started writing more once i figured those out i would like check it against that list anything i was writing i was like "Mm, where's the action or where's the horror or where's the wonder and by making sure that it always had those three ingredients it continued to feel like plain gia okay that's amazing yeah that that's fantastic um so at, at this point when did you feel like you were done like when, what was what was the moment where you're like you set the pen down and went okay this is good enough yeah yeah how do you ever finish a, a baby like this yeah I mean uh, an RPG setting literally by definition is never done right I mean like isn't Ed Greenwood still writing stuff for the Forgotten Realms now I think there's like a rock that he hasn't written a whole book about yet um, <laughs> but the so I, you know, my first game making was, or my first like published game making was in board games. Board games has this, have this really strong ethos of like play test it instantly. Like as soon as you have the idea, scribble it out on paper, throw it in front of people, and go. And so for me, the idea was done enough when I heard and saw people playing, sort of like the the spirit of what I'd intended. It didn't need to be a finished book. Like there's always, I could write 10 more playing Gia books, super, super happily. Like there's a a zillion things that I didn't put in the book, but I started hearing about people who are running games and were, how we're doing exactly what you were doing earlier in this podcast. Right. They were saying like, Oh yeah. And it has claws and it's loping along and just like getting that metal experience or talking about these gods they'd made that were just like awesome and mystical. And so for me, the setting felt done or, or uh, done is probably the wrong word. It felt alive when other people made it alive and adopted it as their own. And then from then it was just like, have I like, is there anything that I would be like, um, that I feel like they would be missing something important or that some part is there, is there a player who would be disappointed if something that I have in my head was left out of the book? Like, Mm -hmm. Is there enough in here? If someone wants to play an elf, is there going to be enough for them? If someone really loves fighters, is this going to like be what they need? And so once I had put in threats that handled all the different monster types in 5e, and once I had made factions that tapped into all the different races and classes, and once I had sort of created enough um, DM guidance where I felt like, yeah, I mean, you know, there's more that I could say, but I feel like you could run a game off of this. Um, somewhere in there, you know, it got done. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it was a matter that you, you needed for, for your own personal on this one, you felt that you needed to make sure it connected with D and D on a far enough level that someone who a player would pick it up and go, I can see myself in this world and I feel the world. Yeah, I think so. Because I think for a setting, it's not like, 
it's it's just is not about the lore. All of the lore gets changed. Like so many people run playing Gia games, and the first thing they change is the name um, because they don't like it because it's a pun, and they. Uh, and that's fine because that like that's not the setting. The lore isn't the setting. The setting is the feeling that it creates at the table. It's the sort of um, effect. I think David Foster Wallace talked about the end of um, uh, Infinite Jest, and he says if it's working, it sort of like hums and projects the ending out in front of you. And I feel like if a setting is working, it hums and projects the emotion that you're trying to create. Um, and then the rest, you know, and that can be done in a page. Like I, I have made this um, space opera sort of sci-fi sword and sorcery setting called Prismanox that I literally put on one PDF that's the size of a movie poster. Hmm. And it's a whole setting and it's fine. And it's like you can play it based on that and it's doing its job um, and it doesn't need more. So as soon as the head setting is humming and projecting the emotion and the experience, then you're good. It's done. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. That's fantastic. We do have some questions that came from uh, our, our uh, Discord members, and we'd love to throw yeah. them at you and, and, and share kind of answering through this. Um, uh, and then we'll, we'll we'll do a little bit more. But uh, Nevin, one of our, our people, said, when creating worlds, should we start on a macro scale looking at the big picture or on a micro scale mm-hmm. i think we already, we already so touched on this two... one a little bit here yeah oh go ahead sorry oh i was gonna say i think you already uh, i was actually gonna prompt you here i think you already you already kind of touched on this you said like start small you know start local don't start with your mythology you know uh yeah even even that 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 uh you know your your first getting started on uh running you know games on twitter you started in medias res yeah uh, mm-hmm. you know, with like, you're running, there's a shack, it's raining, get shelter, you know, and yeah. that's, that's, that was, that was your world building. There's a shack, it's raining. Yeah. And, and for me, it's, it's always been, it's something that I've, I've talked about a lot on this is that your players don't see beyond the mountains that you tell them mm-hmm. about. Yeah. So there's no reason to write beyond the mountains because there's, there's nothing to, going on there. Cause what's going on over there doesn't yeah. matter. The Correct. story's here. Correct. Yep. Um, yeah. and, and I think you expose that in just like, okay, I, I can do this scene. Where does this scene lead? What is the mm-hmm. feeling where I need to express? And I think that's the big, the, the, the big thing on the micro scale is you're setting a place and that place has a feeling. Mm-hmm. And so on that micro scale, that's, that's a great place to start is, okay, how does it play? Yep. Yep. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I worked with Justin Alexander at um, Atlas Games to, to finish publishing this. Um, and he's a great, great developer. And um, his advice that he had published long before I started working with him is um, prep uh, scenario or prep situations, not plots. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think whole that's shows about that. always <laughs> great advice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I think it, it applies for world building too, right? Don't, don't world build a plot, world build a situation, yeah, a problem yeah, yeah. that needs to be solved. Yep. Yep. That's exactly the way we, I'm glad we are all on the same page. Absolutely. It makes me feel that this podcast is doing a good thing. Um, another thing is, is there a checklist to follow with creating worlds? I think in the, the, the two elements that I've, I, I heard from you, um, one was defining, um, what your players are, what are the adventurers doing in this world? Uh-huh. You know, mm-hmm. what are the forces against the adventurers in this world? And what is the feeling of the world? 
What are your what is the what is the overall thread that you're trying to keep alive in the, the yeah. in in the feeling of what's going on around them? Mm-hmm. And then I think the other thing is how does that fit to the system? If it's the mm-hmm. system that you're trying to tie it to. Right, right. Can you can you legitimately see the system's ties directly to it without having to completely homebrew everything? Yeah. I think that's so important. Um because like, you know, it's it's an entirely different question what's the checklist if you're building for Apocalypse World versus D and D, or like take it further. If you're building for dread, or if you're building for lasers versus feelings, or you know, yeah, whatever. Like uh, it, it's it's or a cozy RPG, right? So or even no think, RPG altogether. If you're just writing a setting book, that's you know yeah. RPG agnostic. You yep. know, perfect. Yeah, exactly. So I think the question is not just what world do I want to make, and does it does it vibe with this system? But really, if you're working with the system. What does this system do best? Mm-hmm. And how can I, because uh, this is this is the whole thing with, and I, I can only speak from my experience, right? So this is just like based off of this one writing project that I've done, but all of it was, okay, but how can this do what D&D does best, the, what 5e specifically does best? Yeah. Um, yeah. So look at, go back, again, this is about soaking in the inspiration. I mean, I can't tell you how much time I spent watching um, YouTube videos where D and D designers explained how they thought of magic, and I recently got kind of like in a little uh, a, like heated discussion on my Discord because I was like, "Wait, I don't understand this category of magic." And people are like, "Well, what are you talking about? It doesn't matter." It's like, "No, it matters. I need to understand the design intent of the designers so that I can like make this feel like D and D in the way that I'm going for." Yeah. So I think soaking in the literature that inspires you or the TV or the games, whatever, but also soaking in the mechanics of your writing to a system and really being like, how do I do this really well? And if, and if you're agnostic, then making sure that I guess I would say just like that everything is, um, I guess the, the thing that I would say there is, make it present tense, like really focus on what people are doing right then. We already kind of talked about that. And then the other really good advice I heard and followed, and I'm happy that I followed was Keith Baker who made Eberron. He was talking about world building, um, as, uh, stacking crates of dynamite. Hmm. And I absolutely love that as a, like my job is to not, explain why all of this works my job is to make it incredibly unstable and ready to fall down in a second um and i think a lot of us spend a lot of time trying to build worlds where it's like well wait this wouldn't work because you know that empire would come over there and just crush them in a minute because they don't have defenses and you're like that's called a story hook yeah that's called a campaign yeah exactly you can't explain everything you can explain intention you can explain mm-hmm. you can explain direction, but everything else is a plot that sits underneath that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love that. Like Seventh C has all the motivations of all of the villains, but it doesn't say what their active events are. Yeah. Like this person is is intent on doing this and has this power level, and you're like, Well then they should have already been able to do it. Okay. Why mm-hmm. haven't they? I'm not gonna tell exactly. you who's stopping them. You kind of already know. It's called the heroes. Uh-huh. Like <laughs> like and so that uh, that that gap, that space that you're leaving, that is imperfect. That if you fill it, I'm sorry, you're now writing a novel. 
Yeah. You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're filled in all the gaps. Now your storyteller doesn't need to do anything. Yeah. That's what yeah. we talked about Aberrant earlier, and, yeah. that, and that was the one flaw that they made. Yeah. Was they, f- they started filling in those gaps, and they started explaining everything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the last questions that uh, Nevim has is, uh, what kind of mistakes can be easily avoided when creating worlds, and how did you avoid them, or how do you avoid them? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, there is a mistake where you can be too fiddly with the presentation early, which is a mistake that I made. Um. I, you know, it's easy to fiddle with fonts. It's easy to worry about how it looks and it needs to be good enough that people will read it and like be legible. Um, but I really wish I'd spent less time being sort of precious about the look and just like, (laughs) I wound up having to redo a lot of that look and feel stuff. Um, I guess there's another side to that coin too, which is if it's not immediately for commercial use, um, as long as you credit it, finding a piece of art that expresses and a part of the idea um, is really great and can really help people to lock into the world. I think part of the reason the the book did work um, to those earlier audiences is I, you know, I grabbed some art from, um, you know, from Riot Games and from Far Cry Primal and from here and there. And I was like, this is kind of what I'm talking about. And I think that helped people understand and also um there's an old trick of like grabbing a piece of art for a location when you're running uh, a game and then just bringing stuff from the photograph or from the piece of art into what you're doing even though if it wasn't part of your plan so i would look at that piece of art and be like huh well wait they have like a glowing amulet what do amulets have to do with my world and so that that would start off a whole nother chain of ideas so interacting with art um both like not being too precious about it, but also letting it inspire you. If you're a visual creator like I am, oh, yeah, can absolutely. be a really, really good absolutely. tool. Uh, one thing I, I might also add, um, I think, because I've seen a lot of discussion about this online, is uh, I think a common um, common trope or common, common pitfall for people when they are uh, trying to create their own worlds is trying so hard to come up with something unique mm-hmm. um, that... If you even begin to recognize that you've drawn inspiration from an existing source, you throw it out because, oh, I don't want to copy off of X, Y, or Z existing IP. Um, And I know, David, you come at this a lot differently because you are actually physically publishing, you know, your your settings and such. So you have to – you do have to look at things like plagiarism and whatnot. But, like, Mm -hmm. 99.9% of us, you know, myself included – I'm never going to publish anything. I'm just doing yeah. this for my home game, for my friends. Exactly. Uh, so plagiarism laws don't apply to me because I'm not <laughs> making money off of the things that I do in a you know a rainy Saturday afternoon at my table, yeah. rolling some dice yep. with my friends. So uh, I would say the the easy pitfall to avoid if you are thinking of oh that's plagiarism and oh I shouldn't take no no uh, disabuse yourself of that steal. Everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. If you want to make a Dick Tracy game, make a Dick Tracy game. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. Steal 100%. Yeah. Some of the best tabletop games I've ever heard of being run are uh, blockbuster movies with the serials numbers filed off. Yep. <laughs> That's yep. right. Where they're like, we're yeah. going to play Die Hard, but I'm not going to call it Nakatomi Plaza, and I'm going to see if anybody <laughs> notices. Yeah, and, and, and honestly, I, I bring that up all the time, is, is that if you set the same setting in front of someone of the same events of Nakatomi Plaza, it is not going to play out like the movie. 
No. You have a perfectly good world scene and setting and feeling and, and NPCs and everything you need. You know how all that's going to function. Don't mm-hmm. expect it to go that way. But steal it 100% whole yeah. cloth without question. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, I would add to that too. Like I think the idea – like the obsession with being original is a really, really recent development in like human art making. Mm-hmm. And if you think about – Roman mythology. That's pretty old. Like they were just ripping off the Greeks. And if you think yep. about the great some of the greatest work ever made, yep. like Dante's Inferno, that is nothing but pastiche. That is purely like I, he's ripping off the Greeks. He's telling about people that they knew that he was like making fun of. Um, you know, if you think about the Knights of the Round Table, those were all borrowed stories. Like actually everything is remix. And for us to put that pressure on ourselves to be original is not only unnecessary and a burden, it's also a little bit like um, it kind of disregards the main flow of storytelling throughout history and throws all kinds of babies out with the bathwater when really the joy of remix is is a deeply human experience. And I know for me, I constantly, I mean, I run a pretty... I run a I run a kitchen sink fantasy game for my home group that's actually not in Plangia because it started uh, before that was done, and uh, I it's a pretty like story driven exploration like real high stakes kind of games, but I'm still throwing in pop culture references left and right, and it actually doesn't break the immersion for anyone. Yeah, it's yeah. like oh we're talking about this like that feels like this thing great mm-hmm. I love that thing let's go it yeah. helps yeah. No, I, I, I do that all the time with my 7C game. I bring in pop culture references because it's easy to, to it's easy for your players to reference, to get the feeling, to get the sound, to get the tone of the moment. Captain when you Vampa. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Captain Vampa. I literally stole one of my characters, which was Campa Vampa, Captain Vampa. From uh, uh, Count of Monte Cristo. Count of Monte Cristo, because I wanted people Perfect. to know who that person was. Yep. And didn't was, even change the name. Nope, didn't. And we love it. Yep. Just absolutely was, love it. Yeah. Just here now. Yeah. And, and that was, uh, it's those types of things, like, um kind of going back to your uh your art literally while you were talking about the remix of art i was thinking of dante's inferno like in the top yeah. of my head i'm like it's just a rebirth everything is just yeah. a rebirth yeah, yeah. um mm-hmm. but to bring it all back home there's a reason why weird al made tons of albums and everybody loves him he was honest yes. about what he was doing yeah and in the mm-hmm. end people loved it even the people he was parodying were just like please do this not only does it bring, <laughs> bring me fame because you're mixing something that maybe someone who's never heard my music will now go listen to the original but at the right. same time like we're all having fun yeah yeah we're we're going back to the root and the core of what this is meant to be which is fun yeah yes. yeah absolutely you know if you can't you can't peel that layer I'm sorry. You're, 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 yeah. Let's let's play replay the battles of you know of of Antietam exactly as the forces were and and just under different randomized rules. Okay, mm-hmm. great. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a board game. Fantastic. Yeah. And if if utter originality is your fun, that is also not wrong. No, right. Agreed. Like, if that is what makes your creator brain tick, like that is awesome. It will probably be more work and less accessible to others because if you're trying to do that and nothing has any reference to anything else then it's just like it's going to be a little harder to grok 
Right. Um, there was someone, I can't remember his name. I'm sorry. There was someone who really deeply studied what makes something cool a while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this was like in the, I want to say like the 50s. And he basically boiled it down to an element of the familiar and an element of the unfamiliar put together in terms of like design of things, not necessarily behaviors right. or attitudes, but like stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah. I think that I, I want to say that was rebirthed later because the the concept came into why was the chia pet such a thing? Uh-huh. It was because it was something of the familiar growing plants at home, yeah. and and something of the unfamiliar. It's the shape of a animal of a sheep, and it's coming through mm-hmm. pottery. Uh huh. But everybody <laughs> yeah. attached to it in such a weird way, yeah, because it was mm-hmm. different and cool, and yet there was nothing unique about it. Truly, oh, it had right. a catchy theme song. Ch-ch-ch-chia. I mean, there was that as well. It sold. The theme well. song was good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Overwatch has something that was answered, but I didn't know if you wanted to 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 to, to go into it more. What was there? Was there a specific moment of inspiration that brought the idea of Plangea to life? Or if not. How did it form over time? We kind of talked about how it formed over time, but it was it was that moment in in uh, ten thousand BC. Was, it was that? that uh, it was a few different moments, but I think I'll say the one other really formative um, early moment. There were a lot of moments, um, but another big one was when the idea of the gods came together, and that was again immersing in the um, in the material. I was like, surely I can't be the first person to write. Stone Age fantasy. Spoiler, I am super not. Um, And in fact, H.G. Wells wrote the story of the Stone Age. um, And uh, I don't know that it's great literature. I definitely (laughs) know that there are objectionable aspects to it. Um, But I was reading that and I was beginning Clan of the Cave Bear, which also, you know, same same warnings apply. Um, And between the two of them, they were talking about sort of animals as gods or animals as spirits. And uh, the sort of alchemy of reading those two things around the same time brought together this sort of this vision of gods in this kind of very different way. And I think when that clicked through, it was like, oh, well, those can function like kings or local governments or lords in the game and they can be magic shops and quest givers and 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 there was sort of this like chain reaction in my brain that i was like oh yeah okay there's a, there, there's a game here yeah. yep 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 no that's fantastic uh nox actually asked um i know david talks about swapping traditional D spells uh, and such for more prehistoric talismans and stuff but what in uh but what inspired such innovation and does he have any tips for stretching those concepts into other themes and genres? Yeah, for sure. My biggest tip is what what does that do in the game? Like why what's the fantasy, right? What are people trying to get out of that thing? And then how can you like allow that fantasy in a different way? So you know, you think about a spell scroll in Plangea, there's no writing, so you don't have scrolls, you have talismans that you can crack open and then the spell releases. And that, you know, the thought there came from, well, what's great about a spell scroll? It's a consumable item, you pick it up, you use it once, you don't really know have to know what you're doing, and it releases and it's used up and then it's done. And it's like, alright, well, yeah, you, what if you like break off a little firecracker and then it happens? Um... And so I think a lot of things 
can work like that. And I think for um, for really any genre, you can look at what role does this play in the game or in the fiction? Um, how can I have it have that feeling, but be called and maybe even like look something very different? So um, you could think about a dwarf being like this super strong, uh, like person who's really connected to tradition and think about something like, steampunk and you might think well like what does that look like and, you know maybe it looks like um you know a person who is made of metal who has like these songs from uh, you know the people who who forge them like carved into their um into their metal and that you know when steam courses through them these voices rise out and those chants like drive them forward with this unstoppable like locomotive force that's that's actually a dwarf because what you did is you just thought what is a dwarf and then you expressed it through the aesthetics of the genre that you're using. Love it. Yeah, that's that's incredibly beautiful. Yeah, it really is. So So right. uh is there anything else you wanna you wanna say as a wrap up or or anything else you want to uh, address with Plangia or or to our audience? Um, I guess the only thing other thing I'd say is like uh, I guess in the in the a question earlier was about mistakes that were made that would be avoidable, and sure. I think one thing that uh, a mistake that I made early on was you know I stayed too close to some of the original literature and some of the material that later I couldn't stand by as I learned more, um, just stuff that just like um, isn't suitable for um, for modern games, stuff that sort of like fell. Um, you know, fell a little tone deaf on, on my ears as I read it as a, as a person living today. And, but a lot of that stuff I wrote into some of the very early materials. And what I would encourage anyone to do is if you're working on something and there's part of it that you're uncomfortable with in a bad way, like there are going to be stuff that you're uncomfortable with in a good way. Like if you're writing horror, you want it to be making you uncomfortable. But if there's something that like you really don't feel right about, even if it's core to what you're doing, just, it's okay to stop to to ask yourself like does this feel right i mean in so many ways this is like um you know that that taking a moment at the table looking around making sure that people are having fun don't forget to keep making it fun and making sure that it's fun for you and for the people who are at the table and if that means you have to rip out big chunks of stuff and drop it behind you and like move forward, then fine. You're leaving behind something that isn't fun and that isn't making it fun for you or us at the table. So I would just say like, be brave when it comes to editing and to ripping out stuff. And that can be true for objectionable stuff, or it can be just true for stuff that like is the kill your darlings advice in yeah, some way. It's like darlings, if there was yep. something that was great at the start and you don't need it anymore, like it's okay. You can just keep going, keep following the fun. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The, it lines and veils apply to writing your own stuff. Vibe check yourself. Exactly. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I agree with that statement. I was uh, I was always amazed that Seventh Sea, set in its time period, didn't uh, address slavery. It's mm-hmm. not there. Yeah. It's not talked about. And it it's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. It was easily removed. Poverty is there. Clearly there's servitude that's ex- expressed. Sure, sure. But it's it's veiled. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. if you want to include slavery, you most definitely could do it in that universe, but it is not expressed. Yep. And yeah. it, but it's also not it's not nixed at the same time. The person just said, "I don't feel comfortable having this in here. We're not going to include it." Yeah. 
Yeah, yep. and, and I love that concept that you can do that and feel comfortable with going back and, and changing if you were like, yeah, I included this per you know, I included this whole race being, you know, slaves and that's what built them into this tough nation. I can go back and retcon that. Yeah. Like that's yeah, not yeah. important. The fact that they're a tough nation can be made from any number of ways. Yes. Let's yeah. let's figure out a different way to do that because that's not the important thing really. Mm-hmm. And it's yes. it's not important to be said that way. Right. You know, yeah. you could say they were subjugated, but you don't have to say mm-hmm. how. You don't have to go into details. You don't mm-hmm. have to you don't have to make it feel anything like that. If somebody wants to make that assumption in their game, they can assume it that way. Yep. That's their choice. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. So, well, all right. Uh, well, where where can uh, where can people find Plangea if they uh, if they wanna if they wanna take a look? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Plangea dot com, uh, spelled just as it sounds. Obviously, um, can uh, it'll kick you over to a Patreon. Um, if you just Google Plangea, it'll 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 pop up. There's a subreddit. There's a Discord. Um, the Kickstarter page uh, still is getting updates posted, so you can follow that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not it's not hard to find. If you Google Stone Age D and D or Stone Age Five E, you should find it pretty fast. All right. Well, thank Excellent. you so much for joining us today, David Somerville, yeah. author of Plain Gia, uh, and for all your great insights on uh, world building. We really enjoyed having you on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been this has been great. Thank you so much. Absolutely. You're welcome. Uh, so next week's topic is uh, going to actually kind of be a little bit about what uh, what David was just kind of talking yeah, about um, yeah. is uh, some of like the negative stereotypes and such like that in gaming mm-hmm. of uh, you know orcs being violent monsters and elves always being haughty and you know gnomes being little you know uh, uh, thieves and stuff like that um, and there's been a lot of discussion about that uh, yeah. in in the media and whatnot. I know Wizards of the Coast has been making some big sweeping um, uh, changes to some of the lore. To kind of go back and tidy up a lot of the uh, uh, insensitivities and such like that as they're perceived in the modern era. Um, and so, uh, Rob and I are going to do our best to just kind of have a discussion about that, uh, about where they came from, what place, you know, they have in gaming. Um, are they helpful? Are they hurtful? Do they need to be changed? You know, those sort of things. Uh, anyway, you can find us on Twitter at ST underscore Conclave, on Instagram at ST underscore Conclave. Listen to us live every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on MixLR.com slash Storyteller dash Conclave, and join us up on our Discord. We'd love to uh, have you join the discussion, talk to the other great storytellers that are up there, shoot us some show questions, and uh, you can find that link on our Twitter as well as our st- website, StorytellerConclave.com. We'd like to thank our Patreon members who support us every single month, especially our name members who joined us in the Discord today and had some wonderful questions come through. Knox in the Box, Subjet, Sam, the Arcane Asylum, Sparkle Motion, Veteran, Hulavu, and Sean. We truly appreciate all your support. Our pre-show music today was by Sonar Village. It's actually from the Plangea Songs of the Stone Age soundtrack that you can pick up at atlasgames.com. It's a five-album connection with 18 tracks, 18 ambient tracks, and 18 mixed tracks. And it is pretty incredible. I highly recommend that uh, you go at least uh, take a look at that. If, if you're going to be doing this, it's a great play, uh, background music. Our intro music is Beyond the Warriors by Geefrog. You can find that at geefrog.bandcamp.com or on YouTube Music. And our outro music, which you're hearing right now, is Only Our Footprints in the Sand by Midair Machine. You can find that at freemusicarchive.org. And a big shout out as always to our, friends, uh, to our family, Vicky and Sean. Uh, thank thank you. you so much for loving and supporting us. All of our friends who sat with us at our tables over these years to give us these great stories to share with you. Our guest, special guest today, Mr. David Somerville. Thank, thank you so you, much David. for joining us. And, and you, you, every single one of our listeners. We love, love you guys you so guys. much. Good night. Good night.